Uh, we're going to do now what we do each Sunday. We're going to look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, Bible app, any way to access the Scriptures, if you turn to the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, and when you found that, if you're able, stand together with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. This is the very first book in the Bible, if you're looking for it. First book, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the, over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vaults from the water above it. And it was so, and God called the vault sky. And there was evening, and there was morning, a second day. God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so, and God called the dry ground land and gathered together the waters and he called seas and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, trees and land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so, the land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in accordance with their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars, and God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and the birds fly across above the sky, across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living thing with which the water teems, and that moves about in it, and according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water and the seas and let the birds, turn the page, increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them. Lastly, jump over to verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. That's God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us quickly, and we'll dive into this together. Spirit of God, we ask now that you would illumine the preaching of your word. 
As we come to understand, we pray that we would be those who sit under your word rather than those who stand over it in judgment. And would you accomplish the good purpose in us that you want to accomplish through this word? You promised when you send out your word, it doesn't return to you void. It does accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us today, whatever it is. As I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. All because two hearts fell in love. Or sometimes it's all because two people fell in love. Have you ever heard this before or seen those placards that show up in chapters? Or sometimes it's like a photo collage or a collection um, where, where you've got, it's like a, like a pictorial family tree, grandma and grandpa in the middle, and then kids and grandkids around them and all this, all because two people fell in love. And the point, of course, and then these collages, they're often put together by kids or the grandkids. The point is that someone's individual story is not the totality of their story, right? Their, their story has an origin outside of themselves, a story underneath that story of theirs, which, without which their individual story, it wouldn't make sense or even exist. That's really what's being acknowledged, I think, by that saying, which is a sentiment that's actually very much in line with the new teaching series that we're kicking off today entitled Origin Story, which is all about the story underneath the story, the story upon which the story of Jesus that we just spent the last three years unpacking in Matthew's gospel is based and without which we can't truly understand that story, nor would it even exist. Which I don't know how that sounds to you when you hear that, uh, when it first uh, hits the ears. What does that sound like? To say that without understanding the origin story behind everything Matthew presents in his gospel, found in the Old Testament, we can't fully understand the story of Jesus found in the New Testament, and that that story wouldn't even exist without that origin story. I don't know how that strikes you. Maybe that sounds like hyperbole. Maybe it sounds like I'm overselling the importance of that in order to kind of highlight the goodness of this series. I don't know. And I don't know um, how closely you follow any of the like theological controversies that go along in the church uh, from time to time. My own recommendation to you probably is that you don't. Uh, it's not worth it. Most times it says... Shakespeare once put it, a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing. But it was notable, interestingly to me, a number of years back um, in, a conversa- in, a, in a message to his congregation, megachurch pastor Andy Stanley actually suggested the exact opposite was true, that uh, as modern New Covenant believers, we need to, his word, unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament saying, quote, I'm convinced we make a better case for Jesus if we leave the Old Testament and the Old Covenant out of the argument. And what's problematic, uh, to say the least, about Stanley's argument is just how often both the New Testament authors, authors as well as uh, Jesus himself, do the very thing with the Old Testament scriptures that Stanley suggests we leave off. Um, think about I know we spent a lot of time there, Matthew's gospel. Think about how many times um, Matthew would describe something Jesus did and then follow it immediately with, this was to fulfill what was written, and then quote some Old Testament prophet, quote some Old Testament prophecy. Or even the resurrected Jesus himself. Luke 24, he meets the disciples on the road to Emmaus and they're struggling to understand 
what's going on. This Jesus has died, and he explains the whole meaning and purpose of his life and death and resurrection, not by recounting his life and teaching, but, quote, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. That, that's the whole Old Testament, in case you didn't know. Beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So, I don't know. You, I'll leave it to you to decide uh, if we should leave it off or not. I, I'm kind of in the, let's stick to it plan, obviously. And I don't know, maybe you're convinced of that too. Maybe you're already at the place when we start here. You, you believe already of the true value and worth of the Old Testament scriptures for us today, even as new covenant believers. If that's where you're at, my prayer for you is that this series would really just continue to support that belief for you, to be like, yeah, that's right, we do need this still. If you're not convinced, if you're kind of like, man, there's a lot of weird stuff in there, a lot of kind of embarrassing things that we should, maybe we should kind of leave off, I don't know. If that's where you're at, my prayer for you is that by the end of this series, you'd see just how essential the origin story that we have in the Old Testament truly is to the gospel accounts of Jesus' life and teaching. Which, hear me, isn't it all to suggest that the New Testament on its own doesn't have worth and value? I'm not trying to suggest that. Absolutely it does. It definitely does, and, and no question, we can get a full enough understanding of the gospel message in order to understand it and believe it and be saved by it just by the New Testament. 100%, we can. Just as I can appreciate and be moved by the lyrics of the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, without knowing that the author of that hymn, Horatio Spafford, actually wrote those words as he sailed across the very place where his four daughters had died a few weeks earlier in a shipwreck. When peace like a river attendeth my soul, when sorrows like sea billows roll, that he wrote that right over the place where his daughters had died. I, I can appreciate that without knowing that. And yet I think we'd all agree, like, knowing that origin story, understanding that helps us appreciate it helps bring deeper understanding to the words of the hymn that we would never have had otherwise. And that really, maybe, that hymn might not have even been written had the events of that origin story not taken place. And I believe that's exactly what you're going to experience. You, you'll see the very same thing is true of the gospel's origin story, which we're now going to spend the next weeks, no, not three years, we'll spend the next weeks looking through, exploring, and unpacking together in this series. And so in order to just kind of like ease us in, you know, just not like dump everything on you and, and make it hard, I thought we'd start small today. Begin by looking at the origin of everything. That's all. You know, just the origin of the universe, sun, the moon, and the stars, including our planet, and everything in it, including us. Just that. We'll just start small, work our way in eventually. We'll build up to bigger things. But here's the thing. In dealing with this passage which I, I'm going to assume as I look around the room is, is likely familiar to a lot of us. We've read this before. We've heard this before. Maybe it's, it's, our, it's almost become cliche. Uh, in the beginning, God created, and we, we just we kind of know it. We're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I find myself entering into this passage in particular a little bit un, up against a wall, if I can call it that, a, a wall of presupposition or maybe just preconceived ideas before we even begin. Like, that is, I know that people aren't just familiar with this passage. People have already decided 
what the meaning of Genesis 1 is. They, they already have a preconceived idea that they bring in, and, they, and people tend to hold those ideas very strongly, uh, not usually open to uh, other viewpoints about them. For some people, you come in today and you've already decided what we have here in Genesis 1, this is a myth. This is one of the many creation myths of the day, and it's kind of, I mean, it's in direct contradiction with what we already know about cosmology, about genetics and evolutionary biology. So this is a myth story. You've already decided that. For others, I know you come in having already decided that this is a literal historical account of how God created everything, and therefore this is a divine refutation of evolutionary theory. That's how you come in. You've already decided that's what this is. What I'd like to request, if I can, as much as you're able, retain your present presupposition that you hold right now. I'm not trying to take anything away from you. Hold on to that, but would you be at least open to considering a different take on maybe what you have heard from Genesis 1 before? So open your mind at least to also look at it in a different way. Because my own work on this passage, and how about as I've sat in this and wrestled through the whole creation account in Genesis 1, really almost for, I think, the past 10 years now, dipping in and out of this and really trying to wrestle through it, uh, is that I've come to honestly question whether Genesis 1 can be claimed, if we can call it that, by either one of those presuppositions. And the reason for that is because of something, in, really, in any study of literature, but particularly in the study of theology in the Bible, something people refer to as authorial intent. I don't know if you've heard this before. Authorial intent, which is really just answering the question, what did the original author intend to communicate to his original audience when he first wrote whatever he wrote? What did he mean? It's actually a, a key element of biblical interpretation because what we say is, I can't know what this passage means to me today until I know what it meant first to the original audience. It can mean more than that, but it can't mean less. So I need to know what did the original author mean when he wrote this. And the problem is, Darwin's Origin of the Species wasn't published even until 1859, which means I think we can confidently conclude that addressing the questions of, did everything come into being through evolutionary biology and processes, was nowhere in the mind of the author of Genesis when he wrote Genesis 1. Can we, can we agree on that? He wasn't considering that question when he wrote Genesis. What, question was he, what questions was he wrestling through and working through that he was addressing? Well, we're going to look at that uh, as, as we go here. But all I'm saying is that if the question of evolutionary theory was nowhere in the mind of the author of Genesis when he wrote it, we have to honestly ask ourselves whether he's defending either one of those positions. Beyond that, we've got to look at broader spectrum. We've got to look at things like genre. What, what, what genre are we reading right now? What are we looking at here? The literary genre of Genesis 1, if you read this and then go on into Genesis 2, it seems to shift a bit, whereas the language of Genesis 1 feels broader and sweeping and, and rhythmic. We've got these kind of repetitive phrases used over and over again. It was morning and evening, first day, the second day. God saw that it was good. We see this repeated refrain, which seems to feel more like it could be poetry or a song about creation than literal historical narrative. And if that's true, then that kind of has to, we have to hold loosely the idea of these, these have to be literal 24-hour days. But then, on the other side, we've got, look, a, a very purposeful, authoritative plan in the nature of creation. 
described in Genesis 1, which totally undermines this kind of uncaused, purposeless description of creation that we see in a naturalistic, evolutionary perspective. The point is, if we come in starting from our modern perspective of what does this mean to me, we miss what was the questions that the original author was addressing. What was he trying to tell us? And I'm going to give you my own take. And my own take is that the authorial intent of Genesis 1, what the origin story that we have in this passage is actually trying to communicate to us are just two things. It is intended to reveal to us the author of creation and the goodness of creation. That's definitely what this was trying to communicate to us. Who is the author of everything? And what is the nature of everything he created? It's good. That's absolutely what he was trying to communicate to us, at least. So, let's do this. If you've closed your Bible, if you could open it again to that passage in Genesis 1, beginning at verse 1, follow along with me. As we look at the origin of everything, as well as its implications for the gospel story that we just spent the last three years unpacking. Don't worry, it's not going to be that long. So let's look first of all at how Genesis 1 reveals the author of creation. Who is the author of creation? Okay, so if it wasn't addressing naturalism, if it wasn't addressing Darwinian evolutionary theory, the author, if he wasn't addressing those questions, what were the questions that the author of Genesis was addressing? And the answer to that is found both by studying the creation myths of the ancient Near East as well as looking at the language and imagery of the passage itself. So in ancient Babylon, in Mesopotamia, you had these epic battles between the god Marduk and these other deities. These huge battles would take place, and then you have these sort of, what to me sounds like kind of grotesque stories of the body parts of different defeated deities used to create different parts of creation. That, that was what they understood as the origin of creation. In Egypt, you had the sun god Ra, who was emerging from the chaos and then worked together with other deified elements of creation, uh, air, water, earth, sky, to create all that is. These and, and stories like them, these were the dominant creation stories of the day, that, that people understood that's how everything came into being. Therefore, as Gordon Wenham states it, Genesis 1 is a deliberate statement of the Hebrew view of creation over against these rival views. It's not merely a demythologization of other creation myths, whether Babylonian or Egyptian. Rather, it is a polemical repudiation of such myths. In the very first act of repudiation, Genesis levels against Marduk, Ra, any other gods known or named in that time is to reveal the God of the Bible as the true author of everything that is. Stating very profoundly and, and clearly, verse 1, in the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. He's the author. But then look, as you read what follows, you can begin to see how the way he describes God's authoring of creation is actually confronting the different creation myths of the day specifically. Starting, look at verse 2. We see that rather than emerging from chaos, like the God in Egypt, Ra, God stands over and apart from it. Rather than magical utterances and incantations found in the Egyptian acts of creation, or the cosmic battles of ancient Babylon, we see in Genesis 1 that each section of creation begins with God simply willing and then bringing everything into existence by the spoken word 
and powerful spoken word. He just, he just wills it and brings it into existence. Look at verse 16. Here he purposely refers to the sun and the moon, not by their names, but he calls them the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. Why does he do that? Well, he's trying to avoid the sun and the moon being seen in any way as principal or even co-deities that they were understood to be in this time. So he doesn't even name them. They are rather, as Bruce Walkie puts it, nameless objects designed by the one creator God to serve humanity. Lastly, there's lots more, but here in verse 26 through 30, he describes the creation of humanity as the goal, as the pinnacle of creation, rather than an afterthought to relieve the gods of work as they were in Babylonian mythology. So you see, each one of these things, he's, he's addressing these specific creation views with the way he describes creation. Which means what? Which means what exactly? Is Genesis 1 just trying to settle like a, a, a schoolyard debate? With one group saying, our gods are the ones who, who made everything that is. And then the other group being like, no, no, it wasn't. Our God made the heaven and earth. And then we're just left to kind of decide for ourselves who's right. Is that what's going on? And then more than that, if I do accept that God is in fact the author of creation, how does understanding this origin story from the Old Testament matter for better understanding Jesus' story in the New Testament? Great questions. Firstly, first thing to say is no. This origin story was never written to be just kind of one more addition to the cosmic like menu board of options to choose from. Uh, uh, it wasn't just kind of like we're going to throw our hat in the ring and this is how we think it happened. No, this story, if you've got to think, was first and foremost written to God's people. This was an account written to them at a time when people were still discovering who God is, what he's like, in order to help reveal God of the Bible, Elohim, he is the supreme sovereign one. He has supremacy over all the other gods of the surrounding nations. That's what he's trying to communicate to the people in the midst of all these other views around them. Now, okay, so then having said that, does, does that have relevance to God's people today? Uh, as we live amongst the you know, deities and, and worldviews all around us, Absolutely, yes, it does. So that to that degree, yes, the creation account of Genesis 1 also repudiates a naturalistic, causeless account of the Earth's origins, such as in Darwin's Origin of the Species. It does. And I know you're like, wait, I thought you said no. My point was only that to, we need to acknowledge the author of Genesis did not have evolutionary theory in particular in mind when he wrote Genesis 1. That's all I was trying to claim. And then, man, as it relates to the story of Jesus, this origin story has, has many and massive implications for us, not least of which the Apostle Paul states in Colossians 1.16 that Jesus is that author of creation. The author of creation is Jesus. That is, he says, the one by whom and for whom all things were made. So that, that's pretty significant. It also brings understanding as we read through the gospel accounts of the many instances of authority that Jesus demonstrates over creation throughout his earthly ministry. Everything from turning water into wine to healing sick people. Uh, he curses that fig tree and it, it withers to raising people from the dead. He's demonstrating this authority over creation. Think about it. In fact, you remember Jesus calming of the wind and the waves that were threatening to drown his disciples in the boat. What do they ask him? After they witness this incredible act of authority, they say, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? The answer, 
he's the author of creation. And the wind and the waves obey him because they recognize the voice of the word that first spoke them into existence. Lastly, understanding Jesus as the author of creation from Genesis 1, who speaks things into existence, also prepares our New Testament understanding of him as the author of salvation. That is, the author of recreation or regeneration, regenesis. As Paul states in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. There's so much more we could say. There's like we could spend all day just unpacking all the different implications, but these are just some of how the first origin story that we're looking at today reveals, first of all, the author of creation. It's saying, God, he's the one, the maker of all things. As well as, we helps us, helps us to see why that matters to our understanding of the New Testament story of Jesus. Last thing I want to look at together with you is how this origin story also reveals the goodness of creation. It shows us the goodness of creation. Where you see this most clearly in this origin story of Genesis 1 is that repeated refrain stated throughout God's work of creation again and again, and God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. Saw that it was good. Seems like he's trying to make a point. And not, and not saw like as though, like one commentator put it, like God was surprised by the goodness of what he created. Like, oh wow, this turned out well. Like saw in the sense of like he recognized, acknowledged its goodness, its beauty, the perfection of what he'd made. I think you see the goodness of creation, the blessing and the benediction of God over the birds and the fish in verse 22, as well as over human beings in verse 28, in particular. And then he, he commands them to be fruitful and multiply. Almost as if God saw these acts of creation in particular as so good that he was like, oh man, we're going to have to make a lot more of these ones. These are good. Let's make more of these. This creation account, we see the goodness of creation. As you see in verse 2, God's creation brings light and order and fullness to that which was formerly dark, formless and empty. It's also good, as we go on to read in chapter 2, that it was a place, God's creation was a place of beauty and abundance where God and his creation dwelt together in perfect harmony and freedom. It's good. Which is interesting because just what you see and you understand this stated goodness of creation, it's also repudiating many of the ideologies common in the ancient Near East as well. From the dualism of ancient Greek and Roman understanding that saw the material world as evil, Evil and something to be discarded, whereas the spiritual world, that was the good and the pure thing. To the pantheists who, who overvalued creation, saw it as something to be worshipped. In all such cases, the goodness, the blessing of God over his creation that we see from this origin story directly is addressing those worldviews, saying, no, it's like this. It's good. It's valuable. It's good. I mean, there's so many places where we see the goodness of God's creation from this Old Testament origin story preparing us, like laying the foundation for the story of Jesus in the New Testament. Not least of which, we see in the coming of Jesus to earth at all, which we just finished celebrating this past Christmas, the incarnation. The coming of Jesus to earth, there, there's immense goodness and value 
given to God's creation that's communicated in the incarnation of Jesus. For think about it, why initiate a rescue mission of such cosmic proportions as this unless what Jesus is sent to recover is, is of inestimable value to him? It's, it's, it's so good that he needs to come back in order to redeem it. But more than that even, what this origin story reveals and sets us on, up to understand is the basis for a claim that I made earlier last year in which so many people after that message reached out and just said like how, how much that had meant to them, how important that was for them to hear, which is the way that the goodness of creation responds to the real damage the real trauma that's been done to many of our souls over the years by a gospel presentation that begins in Genesis 3 with the fall instead of in Genesis 1. With a God who looks over the pinnacle of his creation, you and me, and says that what he has made is very good. Again, for too many of us, we've grown up with a gospel presentation that starts with our fallenness, starts with our brokenness, our separation from God. We start in Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's where we start. The problem with that is that it reduces the message of gospel to a trash restoration project. This idea that who you truly are, the core of your being, is, is wicked, rebellious, awful. But don't worry, God's so good and gracious, he's still willing to work with you. He's still willing to bring you along and clean you off and adopt you into his family. Which is confusing because, I mean, God is good. He is gracious. And yet, what that gospel presentation fails to recognize is that where the Bible begins is not with the fallen rebellious you, but with the made in God's image and likeness and very good you. That's where the Bible starts. Which means rather than anything like a trash restoration project, the message of the gospel, the entire reason that Jesus came to earth is actually a rescue mission. It's a recovery mission to restore back to himself that which is very good and therefore very precious to him. I think that, that, that alone is one of the very greatest and most hopeful truths of all, that understanding this origin story, the goodness of God's creation reveals to us, which makes origin story of Jesus coming to earth a thousand times more meaningful and compelling. Where it starts is with our goodness. What God made is good. Problem is, because so many of us have lost sight of that story, we've lost sight of the origin, we, we've maybe even just forgotten the story, and I'll close with this, because we've forgotten that or we've lost sight of it, we go looking for our value and our worth and that benediction in other places, in other people than in the author of creation who created us valuable and good. And yet, no matter how hard we try, somehow we always come up short. No matter where we go looking, we never seem to be able to find it. Brene Brown describes that struggle for valuation this way. She says, when we do not understand our value, we often exaggerate our importance in ways that are not helpful, and we consciously or unconsciously hustle for attention and validation of importance. I got to make sure everyone saw that I did that. I, I got to make sure that I build up this achievement so that people say, oh yeah, you're valuable. I'm hustling to try to get my value because I don't know that I am. 
in his own work on this passage, Tim Keller, talking about the blessing and benediction of God over his creation, put it like this. Every single one of us in our heart of hearts, because we were built for this, we're trying to fill a vacuum. We want our parents to love us. We want to get married to somebody who loves us, somebody hopefully that we admire. We're going out and trying to do well in the world. We're trying to make money. Why? We're trying to get a benediction. We're trying to get other people and other things to say, you're good, you're wonderful, you're delightful, you're incredible. That was great. But it never satisfies. Why? Because it's God's benediction that we need. But then looking to Jesus' baptism at the start of his earthly ministry, where the Father says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, Keller concludes this way. He says, that was the first time since the Garden of Eden that any human being had gotten the benediction. The good word where God looked down and said, it is good. And he had the delight and the love of God. Which means, looking at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, what was happening on the cross is he was getting the malediction we deserve. He was getting the, depart from me, you cursed one. Jesus got the malediction we deserve so that when our faith is placed in him, the word made flesh, we get the benediction that he earned with his life. Wow. <laughs> are you seeing it already? I hope you are. The, the, the incredible value and worth of returning to the origin story of Jesus because we're reminded again of what's true. We're reminded again of so much of what, uh, the basis for so much what we know and love in the New Testament. We're given a clear vision once again through the fog of both secular as well as distorted religious views of creation of the solid foundation upon which every single one of us can stand. That you matter to God. You matter to Him. And in Jesus... Each one of us can hear the benediction, the good speech of our Father spoken over us once again. This is my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. Thanks be to God. Amen.